Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. M is for the Marquee. The Marquee Club was a music venue first located at 165 Oxford Street, London, England, when it opened in 1958 with a range of jazz and skiffle acts. Its most famous period was from 1964 to 1988, because that's when Mark Riley had played there, Ooh. at 90 Wardour Street in Soho. And it finally closed uh, when it was at 105 Charing Cross Road in 1996. OK, it was always a small and relatively cheap club located in the heart of the music industry in the West End in London and used to launch the careers of generations of rock acts. It was a key venue for early performances by bands who were to achieve worldwide fame in the 60s, and it remained a venue for young bands in the following decades. It was also the location of the first ever live show by the Rolling Stones on the 12th of July, 1962. OK, so the origins of the club. It was established by Harold Pendleton, an accountant whose love of jazz had led him to become secretary of the National Jazz Federation. Originally, it was located in the Marquee Ballroom in the basement of the Academy Cinema in Oxford Street, where dances had been held since the early 1950s. Oh, now Harold Pendleton, Mark, he was originally from Southport and he moved to London in the post-war years. So what what did he do in Southport then? He was an accountant oh, and he fancied his chances in London, Mark. That Just all makes saying. sense. All right, its decor was designed by Angus McBean with a striped canopy to imitate a marquee. Pendleton took over management of the ballroom and the first Jazz at the Marquee night was held on the 19th of April, 1958. So Johnny Dankworth, Chris Barber, Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis were early resident performers and Tubby Hayes and Joe Harriet were also regular performers. In 1962, the club began a regular rhythm and blues night that occasionally featured visiting American musicians such as Muddy Waters. Okay, so we get to the 60s now. In March 64, the club moved a short distance to what became its most famous venue with an entrance at 90 Water Street, as mentioned, with the actual music venue housed across two buildings. Here, almost every major rock band of note played over the next 25 years on the tiny stage. Now, amazingly, the marquee in Water Street didn't have an alcohol licence until 1970. Wow, okay. So Jack Barry, along with Agent Kenny Bell came up with the idea of opening a private bar above the marquee at 100 Wardour Street. That was called La Chasse. So the band residences during the late 60s included Alexis Corner, Cyril Davis, Chris Barber, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, The Who, King Crimson, um, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop, Yes, Jethro Tull, the Jimi Hendrix Experience and Pink Floyd, who played on Sunday afternoons as part of the Spontaneous Underground Club. Another band that made regular appearances there was the Manish Boys, featuring David Bowie, who first played there in November 1964 and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac gave their first performance there in 1967. 
onto the 70s now. Bowie filmed the 1980 floor show at the Marquee for the American NBC TV late night show, The Midnight Special. NBC used the Marquee Studios, which is sort of housed beside the venue, uh, as dressing rooms for the cast. Although never a seminal punk venue, the club nevertheless embraced the burgeoning punk rock movement in the late 70s and regularly promoted punk and new wave nights in the 1980s. There were lots of skirmishes there, weren't they? Mm. Uh, I think, it, was it the um, it was it when Bob Harris got attacked by Sid Vicious? Was that at the Marquee, was it? I think there, was one, right. there was one big incident at the 100 Club and there was yeah. another one at the Marquee right. as well. There, But yeah, I did play with the four there and I can't remember if it was just one night or two. I do remember we were just sat there being typically miserable in mm. the dressing room but still thinking, wow, we're at the marquee. Yeah. I was anyway, and yeah. I'm thinking about Bowie, if I'm honest. Uh, and this guy came in and sat beside us and uh, opened up a beer and we're like, hello, uh, what do you want? And right. he said, uh, I'm the drummer with uh, Gary Newman. Really? And we're going, right, bog off. And so he went, right. and then it was in like the enemy the following week that there'd been a bloke going around London, bumming his way into gigs and dressing rooms, pretending to be the drummer out of Gary Newman. Well, didn't Gary Newman use drum machines? Was no. All, oh, did he not? No, he of drummer. course he didn't. No. Right. And he did look like the drummer in Gary well, Newman. He was a bit on top of the pop. So it didn't make sense, but we, till, uh, we still told him to bog off. <gasps> okay, so in 1980s now, during the early to mid-80s, the marquee became an important venue to the new wave of British heavy metal. Hmm. All right, Metallica performed the first show in the UK there in March 84. In 1988, Harold Pendleton sold the club to Billy Gaff, the former manager of Rod Stewart. Uh, the Warder Street site was sold for redevelopment. It's now uh, Mezza and Floridita with a cigar retail shop, Spanish restaurant and Cuban restaurant. Ironic that somebody from the music business would get it and flog it on. I mean, Absolutely. it's like, a, it is just an iconic building and name. Mm. And that was a funny thing, because, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, if you look at Metallica coming over and they would think, wow, we're playing the market. Yeah. It was one of those venues, like the 100 Club, that you think this is just steeped in it. Yeah, tick off the list and all that stuff. So we're looking at the, the Davy Bowie moments associated to the club. Friday the 6th of November 1964, Davy Jones and the Manish Boys play there for the first time, supporting Gary Farr and the T-Bones. He opened for them a lot. Yeah, well, Gary Farr and the T-Bones. I'm pretty sure Keith Emerson was a member for a while, wasn't he? Was he? Right, yeah. OK. Uh, and so uh, we have mentioned this previously. On mm. this night, Davey Bowie met Dana Gillespie for the first time. So Dana Gillespie said this. Uh, One night there was Davy Jones and the Manish Boys. He came on stage with knee-length suede boots with fringes. A bit like Robin Hood, Sherwood Forest look. Long blonde hair and a kind of pirate-type shirt. Oh, not doing it for me. Uh, she carries on. So I sat as usual in the front row with my mouth open. Agog. I didn't particularly like the music. I wasn't particularly taken with his sax playing either. This was at the sound check, and during the break, I was standing in front of the mirror, brushing my hair. David came up from behind, took the brush out of my hand. He started brushing my hair and asked if he could walk me home that night. It was my first boyfriend that wasn't upper class. No offence. Mm. Uh, 10th of December 1964, played there again, this time supporting the Moody Blues, which they do again in the February of 1965. On the 12th of April 65, they performed an unsuccessful audition for a booking agent at the Marquee, which was another nail in the coffin for Bowie's association with the Manish Boys. On to June 1965, they performed some warm-up spots for Radio London broadcast the Inecto show, uh, but nobody bothers to record them or broadcast them. And, uh, and Inecto, by the way, is a shampoo brand. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> OK. August 65, no longer a Manish boy, but back by the lower third now. An interview with Bowie recorded at the Marquee with Kenny Everett, broadcast on the Kenny and Cash show. Is that uh, Dave Cash? I think it is, yeah. And lots more appearances at the Marquee throughout 1965. So by the November of 1965, Davy Jones and the lower third were so regular at the venue, they became Marquee artists, which meant that the oh. club were also the band's booking agent, which was very canny. Yes. 6th of February 1966, an audition is arranged for young guitarist John Hutch Hutchinson. 
and he gets a gig in the buzz. A big day, Sunday the 17th of April 1966, the Bowie Showboat, and this is the first of his Sunday afternoon residences. Ken Pitt goes to see Bowie perform for the first time, pivotal moment, yeah. and after the show, Pitt agrees to manage Bowie. The gigs, however, were mostly attended by curious tourists. Bowie said in 2001, and one of my keenest memories of the Marquee in the 60s was having a permanent erection because there were so many fantastic-looking girls in there. It was all tourists, especially in summer, all flocking to London to get an R&B star. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting quote, isn't it, that? You know, mm. finish on a high note and all that. But he did many more gigs at the Marquee with his next band, The Buzz, as well, didn't he? He did. So on to 1968, Bowie appears simply as David Bowie. 1969, he appears at a night called An Evening with the Straubs and Friends, which also includes on the bill James Taylor, who's just signed to the Beatles' Apple label. 1st of August, 1971, Bowie and Mick Ronson perform as a duo to a two-thirds full club. And of course, that brings us back round to 18th of October, 1973, the 1980 floor show. Okay, I, um, oh, forgive me if I've said this before, but I was in a cab in London about a year ago and I ended up getting chatting to a, a, the cabbie as you do mm. and he asked me what business I was in and all that kind of stuff I said I'm on the periphery of show business and he told me that he was a roadie for David Bowie and uh, that he was a roadie for the three days at the 1984 really? show at the Marquee yeah and I've still got his number and maybe Ooh. we will even call him up and and see if he'll do an interview for us about the the whole thing but he, I talked to him for about a quarter of an hour about the uh, the actual 1984 wow. show I wonder if he's ever talked maybe, maybe it's a, a real scoop well, I'll, I'll give him a bell and a tip. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. M is for Massier, Tony Massier. Tony Massier, born August 22nd, 1933, in the Bronx, New York City, as Anthony DeMassi, known for his association with David Bowie and his appearances in The Man Who Fell to Earth, The Hunger, and also The Equaliser in the mid-80s. Okay, so in June 1974, Bowie, Coco Schwab, Stewie George, they were driven by limousine chauffeur Jim James to Montreal, a nine-hour trip. Later that year, former pro boxer Tony Massier was hired as Bowie's permanent bodyguard and driver. Big old unit. Yeah, he was, certainly. According to David Buckley's strange fascination bio, Massier used to be Rocky Marciano's sparring partner. He was part of the Bowie entourage until his death in 1991. He was a surrogate big brother to Bowie and would tell him tales of daring do in the boxing ring. Daring do. I've never even heard that phrase before, but I like it. Uh, he drove the limo during Alan Yantob's interviews with Bowie for the BBC Cracked Actor documentary. After seeing this footage, Nick Rogue decided to use both the car and Massia for the man who fell to earth. Although Bowie rode the train to New Mexico, Massia drove the car back to LA at the end of shooting in that same limo. Yeah. By all accounts, he was a very imposing man who stood for no nonsense. During the stage tour of 1978, for example, in San Diego, Natasha Kornilov was busy sewing the band's outfits on a machine that she had sent up to Massey's hotel room. When the company rep started to explain to Massey how the machine operated, he got bored, picked him up by the shoulders, placed him outside the door, and then shut the door in his face. Well, he could have hung him out the window, mm. so he didn't do that. Fair play to him. Uh, Tony and Davy Bowie became good friends, and Tony worked with him on the Serious Moonlight tour. Massey was also the man who drove Bowie around all his old haunts on one visit to London in the late 1970s. This was the occasion when he stopped outside Haddon Hall and Bowie's old landlord came out with the bill for the unpaid rent. <laughs> oh. So in 1976, when Bowie's White Light Tour reached Berlin, photographer Andrew Kent remembered, I think this was a piece that uh, Stephen Dalton and I did for Uncut, actually. Right. He said, uh, we went through Checkpoint Charlie and drove around East Berlin in David's limo. It was the president of Sierra Leone's old Mercedes 600 and he had one of those windows where he could stand and wave to the crowd. He had a great driver, Tony Massier, who went out at night and drove real fast. David and Iggy loved it. They were out all the time. 
time. Well, you know, I mean, that is the uh, famous incident with uh, Bowie at Victoria yeah. train station. He's in the same car, isn't he? Yeah, doing the wave, yeah. Yeah, and he's doing the wave, and people said it was a Hitler salute and all that nonsense. Okie dokie. One of Bowie's first transatlantic flights, once he began flying again, was to New York in December 1977 to serve as best man at Massey's wedding. Iggy Pop was also there. Massey was also Michael Caine's driver and bodyguard for a while during the 1977 film Silver Bears, which I don't know. I don't know it. Okay, he played a character called Marvin Skinner, and uh, Tony died on the 26th of June 1991 in Lodi, New Jersey, from a heart attack. Oh, he obviously really trusted him because he was with him for a long, long time, wasn't he? Yeah, and like I say, I mean, you know, uh, for Bowie, uh, being so frail and everything, having a man mountain as your busy mate didn't, didn't do him any harm, did it? Certainly not. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. M is for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Now, before we go any further, mate... Go on. Have you seen this? Yes, I have seen this. Not since it came out, though, so I've not seen it for a long, long time. Did you like it? It was okay. I wasn't massively enamoured of it, I'll be honest. Okay, because I've not seen it. And the reason for that is, still to this day, uh, is because I went to see it with my dad and, uh, and my missus. Right. And uh, we went to Gatley to a cinema there. Oh, I know that very well. It's not a cinema anymore, no. um, sadly. But it was run by the brother of a famous actor, tell you later. Really? Yeah. And uh, we went in and I threw a sat quite near the front. I thought it's a bit chilly in here. And then as the film started, I thought it's, it's really chilly in here. And then we were like maybe half an hour in. I was, I was my teeth were going, you know. Really? It, was, it was absolutely freezing. And there was a gale blowing through the cinema. Was it just you in the cinema or were there other patrons? There were other people in there as well. But I did say to Trace, I said, it's bloody freezing in here. Right. I know. And then eventually I just thought, right, I'm not watching this. So I said to everybody, are you staying? They were like, yeah, yeah, we'll stay. I said, right. I'm off. So I went outside uh, to the reception, got the manager, had a rare old ding-dong with him because he didn't want to give me any money. He did, however, uh, admit at some point that there was some building work being done and the back of the building was open. Oh, come on. And that's why he was freezing in there. And so I got my money back off him and I went to the pub next door and sat on my own for an hour and a half drinking um, responsibly. Oh, would that be the... Uh, oh, what's that pub? Is it Horse and Ferrier, is it? I think it probably is, Bob, yeah. And I tell you what, I mean, we only need to ride past there now and we can see these probably a blue heritage plaque outside oh, saying Mark Riley got drunk in it on his own but not for the first or last time so instead of seeing a Merry Christmas Mr Lawrence you just sat in the pub got drunk and your other relatives watched it mentally scarred I've, I've still not seen it well do you know what it came out in 1983 it's a British Japanese drama film directed by Nagisha Oshima produced by Jeremy Thomas and starring David Bowie Tom Conti Ruchi Sakamoto Takeshi Kitano and Jack Thompson the screenplay written by Ashima and Paul Myersberg. Now, Paul Myersberg had written the screenplay for The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. Hence, the Bowie connection was based on Sir Lawrence van der Post's experiences as a Japanese POW during World War II in his books The Seed and the Sower and The Night of the New Moon. Okay, so Meyersberg said that I wrote the lines thinking of David saying them and I semi-consciously changed things to suit him. He also noted, comparing him to the Bowie he'd worked with in 1975 on The Man Who Fell to Earth, that he doesn't seem quite so... Tense mm. or hyper, <laughs> which might have something to do with the fact that the uh, cocaine years were behind Certainly. him. And Sakamoto also wrote the score and the theme Forbidden Colours featuring David Sylvian. And also the score won the BAFTA Award for the best film music. Yeah, very distinctive, wasn't it? So to fill you in, Mark, if you haven't seen this, the film deals with the relationships between four men in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, Major Jack Selliers, played by Bowie, 
a rebellious British officer with a guilty secret from his youth, Captain uh, Yonoi Sakamoto, the young camp commandant, Lieutenant Colonel John Lawrence, Conti, another British officer, and Sergeant Hara Kitano, with whom Lawrence develops an unlikely friendship. <laughs> what? Sorry. When you say the young camp commandant... Was he the commandant of the camp? Or was not he a carry on film, or, or, or was he slightly camp? <laughs> I'm trying to work it out. Uh, no, I know the answer to that. And yes, I am being facetious. Okay, let's move on, Bob, uh, to Bowie's involvement, okay? All oh, right, so Bowie was hired for the role of Jack Sellers after director Nagashi Oshima saw him in The Elephant Man on Broadway. He was impressed by the fact that Bowie seemed to have what he called an inner spirit that is indestructible. Bowie was given just three weeks' notice before filming began on Rarotonga in the Cook Islands. Oh, how nice. In the summer of 1982, he said, I'd just finished doing The Hunger and the last thing I wanted to do was make a movie. I wanted a holiday, so I took advantage of the situation and took my holiday in the South Pacific. And while shooting the film, Bowie was amazed that Oshima had a two to three acre camp built on the remote Polynesian island of Rarotonga. Uh, but most of the camp was never shot on film. He said Oshima only shot little bits at the corners. I kind of thought it was a waste, but when I saw the movie, it was just so potent. You could feel the camp there quite definitely. I love this bit. Bowie noted how Ashima would give an incredible amount of direction to his Japanese actors, down to the minutest detail. But when directing him or fellow Westerner Tom Conti, he'd say, please do whatever it is you people do. Oh. <laughs> Bowie described his role as the most credible performance he'd given in a film to that point in his career. I don't want to do it down because it's, it's a very kind of worthy film and everything. I just found it all a little bit kind of too dry for me. Right, OK. So Bowie later confided to a reporter at the Cannes Film Festival that the guilt and shortcomings of Sellers also applied to aspects of his own life this is what Bowie said I feel tremendous guilt because I grew so apart from my family I hardly ever see my mother and I have a stepbrother that I don't see anymore it was my fault we grew apart and it is painful but somehow there's no going back it's unusual for him to kind of open up like that isn't it it's yeah not, not... really strange I mean and again just omnipresence so his half yeah, brother Terry absolutely uh, Sakamoto meanwhile was less than pleased with his own performance in the film saying I couldn't believe how bad my acting was I was traumatised I was lucky enough to speak to him uh, probably about 18 months ago uh, Richie Sakamoto and he said uh, I don't like acting and I don't think I have any ability to do it I'm a terrible actor when I first saw the rough cuts of the film I almost physically fell to the ground luckily I had the music to make after that so I was able to put some good music over my ugly acting uh, poor fella. I mean, you know. I mean, it really isn't that bad, I have to say. It really isn't bad. Well, just when you, when, uh, you know, I mean, uh, to be honest, I've done things. And, and, and if it's something that stays in the can for a while and you know it's going to come out at a later date mm. and you hate it, yeah. it's absolutely nothing worse. If you do something and it's crap and it's come and gone in an instant, like you do a terrible radio programme or something like yeah, that, it's, gone. it's not so bad. But if mm. you've got something that you know somebody's working on and it's going to be released six months, a year down the yeah. line, oh, I've, I, empathy is the word that I've got for the poor Dreading fella. the days, yeah. The boarding school sequences were shot on location at King's College, a private high school in Auckland, New Zealand. Other scenes were filmed in various locations around Auckland, including Auckland Railway Station. At the end of the filming, Bowie did an impromptu show in front of the crew. That's great. Uh, contrary to usual cinematic practice, Oshima shot the film without rushes and shipped the film off the island with no safety prints. It was all going out of the camera and down to the post office and being wrapped up in brown paper and sent off to Japan, Bowie stated. I think Bowie liked the process of that because if other films he'd been involved in, he was just sick of sicking around for you know hours on end then called 
back from his trailer and then more boredom. He said, but this one, it was almost like making a, a record, you know, right. the way it was done so quickly. The film flopped in America, where, in the words of scriptwriter Paul Myersberg, audiences were baffled by a prison camp movie where nobody tried to escape. It's a great line. <laughs> that is a brilliant line. And uh, you mentioned previously, uh, Bobbert, that you did interview Ryuchi Sakamoto, didn't you? And, yeah. Uh, so what did he say? Well, OK, I had to ask about Bowie, of course. I did say to him, I believe that you and Bowie spent a lot of time together while you were making the film. And he said, yes, we spent less than two months together in the South Pacific Ocean every day. And we spent a lot of time together with other actors and crew. And he was a very straight, down-to-earth man, not a superstar, which was great. He was wonderful. Musicians don't talk about music when they get together. I guess we talked about everything, but my strongest memory is of him talking about the cybernetic world and that kind of technology. Uh, people like William Gibson, the cyberpunk author, and William Burroughs. Burroughs was a big influence on him, I believe. Sometimes we talk about politics, but mostly it was the arts and new technology about the future world. That is great, and that is very typically Bowie. I mean, whenever we had a course to meet him, then we would be talking about music a lot, but he would always try and get you off the topic. Yes, I noticed. (laughs) If he possibly could. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. M is for Mercury Records. All right, then. Mercury Records, American-based record label owned by Universal Music Group these days in the States. It operates through Island Records in the UK, distributed by Virgin EMI. Now, Mercury Record Corporation was formed in Chicago in 1945 by Irving Green, Burl Adams, Ray Greenberg and Arthur Talmadge. They specialised in jazz and blues, classical music, rock and roll country music. By hiring two promoters, Tiny Hill and Jimmy Hillard, they worked their way into the pop market with names like Frankie Lane, Vic Damone, Tony Fontaine and Patti Page. Rather than rely on radio airplay, Mercury initially relied on jukeboxes to promote their music. Great idea. In 1946, Mercury hired Eddie Gradell, an American with dwarfism, most notable for participating in a major league baseball game to portray the Mercury Man, complete with a winged hat similar to its logo to promote Mercury recordings. Some early Mercury 
rudimentary recordings featured a caricature of him as its logo. Okay, 1947. Jack Rail, a musician and publicist manager, persuaded Mercury to let Patty Page, who he managed, uh, record Confess, a song that had been earmarked for Vic Damone. The budget was too small for them to hire a second singer to provide the answer parts to Page. So at Rail's suggestion, she did both voices. So, although overdubbing had been occasionally used on 78 RPM discs in the 30s, this became the first documented example of overdubbing uh, using tape. And Patty Page, along with rival Capitol Records artist Les Paul Mary Ford, became one of the artists best known for using this technique. So revolutionary. Yeah. The company released an enormous number of recordings under the Mercury label, as well as its subsidiaries, Blue Rock Records, Cumberland Records, Imarsi Records, Fontana Records, Limelight Records, Phillips Records, Smash Records and Wing Records. Mm. In 1961, Phillips, a Dutch electronics company and owner of Phillips Records, played a key role in Mercury's future by signing an exchange agreement with the American Record Company. Two years later, Mercury switched its British distribution from EMI to Philips. So this is all relevant when we get to Bowie here. It is. Yeah. So in July 1967, Mercury Records became the first US record company to release cassette music tapes. Oh, okay. So the Bowie connection. In early 1969, Calvin Mark Lee was given the job as head of promotions for Mercury Records. He'd known Bowie for a couple of years, having met him at a reception party not long after the release of Bowie's first album on DRAM. And according to Lee, at least, they were briefly an item. One of Lee's allies at Mercury was head of international A&R Simon Hayes, who'd previously been manager of The Fool, which was the design collective, wasn't it? They designed album covers and murals and did John Lennon's uh, Rolls Royce. Yeah, we talked about them in the A to Z of Sight that we did for Six Music. We did, yeah. Both men had loved the demo of Space Oddity and so they decided to get him to sign to the label. The whole Mercury setup was a bit convoluted. His UK arm was a joint operation between Mercury USA and Dutch electronics company Philips, but the American company still had its own office in London, run by Lou Reisner, who also happened to be very wary of Bowie because he too had ambitions of being a singer. That's a weird one, isn't it? Strange. <laughs> After recording Space Oddity, Mercury was so confident of its hit potential that they gave the green light for Bowie to start work on what would become his second album in July 69. But when Hayes played it for his colleagues at a sales conference in Chicago, they all felt it was way too sad and downbeat, especially as the Americans were just about to try to land men on the moon. Mm, right, OK, so Mercury decided to give the single a drastic edit with all the negative stuff about Major Tom taken out and no promotion. And what a surprise, it bombed. Yeah. Phillips were more tenacious in the UK, meanwhile, and got behind the single, even after it had slipped out of the charts in September. The man behind the big push was a newly appointed general manager, Olav Wiper, which oh. is, we know is a great name, Wait. and we know he was a great man for Bowie's career. Definitely. By the time Bowie had finished The Man Who Sold the World, there were major shake-ups going on at Phillips. Uh, Mercury USA were keen to get it released, though, with executive Robin McBride flying over in late 1970 to collect the master tapes and the artwork straight from Bowie himself. Mercury's new press officer, Ron Oberman, decided to get right behind the album and arranged a promo tour of America for Bowie, beginning in late January 1971. So Bowie travelled alone to the States and when he arrived at the airport in Washington, D.C., immigration detained him for an hour. As explained in Paul Trinker's Starman, they were suspicious of his fame manner and pre-Raphaelite looks. (laughs) Oberman was kept waiting until Bowie was released and then spent the next few days taking him to radio and press interviews in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. In New York, he also took Bowie to meet Moondog, the blind street poet and musician who dressed in Viking gear on 54th Street. Legendary fellow. Yeah, Bowie loved him. It was on this trip that Bowie also went to see the Velvet Underground at the Electric Circus and he got chatting to, well, who he thought was Lou Reed. Only to find out later Reed had already left the band. He'd in fact been talking to uh, Doug Yule, who looked very much like Lou Reed. He looked 
look very much like Davy Bowie on the cover mm. of the uh, oh, yeah. Man of Words album. Uh, when it came time for Bowie to go to LA, he was met at the airport wearing his Mr. Fish dress by Rolling Stone writer John Mendelssohn. And the writer was knocked off his stride by Bowie's flamboyant appearance, though his presiding memory was to do with the fact that Bowie's trunk was ridiculously heavy. He actually thought he might have a piano in it. Right, OK. And I, I don't even know if it was on this trip, but it was from Mendelssohn that Bowie nicked uh, the Stooges album, yeah. wasn't it? Later that night, they met up with Mercury Radio promo man on the West Coast, Rodney Binghamheimer. Uh, the um, Mare of Sunset Strip yeah. is a DV, uh, DVD, isn't it, which mm. you need to watch. Bowie was clearly already looking for other options at this point. At one of the parties Binghamheimer took him to, Bowie got talking to Tom Ayres, a house producer at RCA. Here we go. Amid all the comings and goings at Mercury and Phillips, Ayres told him to look at RCA. The only thing they've got is Elvis, and Elvis can't last forever. Mm. Uh, Oberman and Mendelssohn were still taking Bowie to loads of interviews and events, meanwhile, and introducing him to music he hadn't heard. Now, crucially, as you mentioned, Mendelssohn played him the Stooges' mm. first album, told him all about Iggy Pop, while Oberman uh, played him Paralyzed by the legendary Stardust Cowboy, as we've covered in L, of course. We have, and uh, that was one of the things Bowie talked about, one of the joys that he got from going back to, uh, through his cupboards and finding all the old uh, Mercury releases yeah. by the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Yeah. So Bowie's tenure, with Mercury ended in the summer of 1971 when manager Tony DeFries decided to fund the making of Hunky Dory himself before foregoing the option to renew Bowie's contract with the label. This allowed him to then approach RCA. Yeah. When Mercury execs flew over with the expectation to extend Bowie's contract to a third album, DeFries took them out for lunch at the Londonderry Hotel and announced, David will never record for you again. And they weren't happy. It worked though, didn't it? Because obviously he, he bought all of the uh, back catalogue uh, that, that Mercury owned anyway yeah. for, for RCA and yeah. so it was an astute move mm. as often is the case with Tony DeFries The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes M is for Meltdown Festival. Oh, yes. Meltdown, an annual festival held in London featuring a mix of music, art, performance and film. It's held in June at the South Bank Centre, the arts complex that covers 21 acres. That is large. It is. Uh, including the Royal Festival Hall, the Queen Elizabeth Hall and the Haywood. Each year, the festival chooses an established music artist or act as director of the event and they pick the performers of their choosing. So previous Meltdown directors include Elvis Costello, David Bowie, which we'll get to in a moment, Patti Smith, Lee Scratch Perry, Jarvis Cocker, Nick Cave, Scott Walker, John Peel and Ornette Coleman. The festival has been held annually since 1993, except in 2006 when the Royal Festival Hall was closed for refurbishment. In 2018, Robert Smith, lead singer of The Cure, curated his own 25th Meltdown with Lowe and yeah. various other bands, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So a uh, press release now. from Bowie. When Bowie did Meltdown in 2002, this is the lineup confirmed so far, uh, June 2002 at Royal Festival Hall. With most of the artists now confirmed, the Festival Hall is thrilled to announce the much anticipated lineup for David Bowie's Meltdown, boasting some of his favourite artists in an irresistible month of music, film, and visual arts. So, the festival director himself will play a very special concert, the New Heathens Night. June the 29th at the Royal Festival Hall, sharing the bill with one of the most exhilarating live rock bands, it says here, the Dandy Warhols, <laughs> followed by a DJ set from Jonathan Ross in the ballroom. So I did go to this, and I, the thing is that made me laugh, it was that Jonathan Ross, who was mates with Bowie anyway, yeah. and did a lot with him, you know, on TV and on the radio. Uh, but whilst myself and lots of other people were at the party afterwards with Bowie, yeah. and it was uh, quite incredible, and cool. Robert Smith was there, funnily enough, and uh, the singer out of 
cardigans and all that. And whilst everybody was upstairs hobnobbing and drinking free beer, Jonathan Ross was uh, playing records downstairs on his Todd. Oh, really? There was probably people dancing to it, but I'm sure he would probably have rather have been upstairs. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the press release continues. Other concert highlights include Gorilla's Space Monkeys dub session, a special one-off meltdown event which sees the rambunctious virtual band collaborating with Terry Hall at the uh, Festival Hall on June 21st. It also says the irascible Gonzalez supports and prior to the show, there's free entertainment in the ballroom from Canada's Langley Schools Music Project. Terry Edwards was on as well, actually, a oh. mate of ours. Hello, Terry. And the Scapegoats playing Bowie, Dubscar and Rocksteady. And he's a top fella. And also, lest we forget, also uh, has been a member of Holy Holy with, uh, oh, yeah. with Woody and Tony Visconti. Yeah, of course. Accepting Bowie's invitation the following night, Pop Giants Coldplay... <laughs> With support from Pete Yorn, bestow material from their forthcoming album. As to the darkly sensual Suede, playing the first London show in three years. Supergrass, proving that Britpop yielded a group of lasting appeal. Also a new work at the Festival Hall on the 28th of June with support from the uniquely charming Bobby Conn. And I think we can flit through here, I really, so. can't we, mate? So Mercury Rev were on there, Badly Drawn Boy. Television as well, you know. Yeah, Asian Dub Foundation. Uh, Divine Comedy on there. Kimo Poyo Yen. That's right. <laughs> I doubt it, Bob. <laughs> That's not right. Kimo Poyen's cluster, wasn't it? Is That's it, was what it? it was. Yeah. All oh, right. But sorry. they shared a bill with the lonesome organist, I seem to remember. <laughs> AKA Didn't Jeremy know. Jacobson. Right, okay. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I mean, we're going into more my comfortable territory now. Daniel Johnston, oh. who's a legend and uh, known for outsider uh, rock, if you like, and yeah. also uh, in the same category as somebody else who was chosen for the Meltdown Bow Bowie, which was the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Oh, just so great. Waterboy's on there as well. Mm. Uh, Harry Hill, the only non musician in Bowie's lineup. Yeah. And uh, he was, I mean, it was, I only went there that night. And so uh, we, we can look at a review here by okay. Fiona Sturgis. This was in the Independent, wasn't it? wasn't it this it was um, yeah and so i mean the night did it, it, it famously started off with davy bowie doing low from start to finish and then he did heathen in yeah. a different set and then he did an encore we'll look at the set list in a bit but this is a review by fiona sturgis okay so she says the lineup at this year's meltdown may have been less than spectacular but this performance from its curator arrives with an acute air of anticipation from the second davy bowie appears on stage the crowd are on their feet and straining to get a better look some rush to the front steamrolling security guards in their haste to get closer to their hero. I've got some photographs that I took from this, and I am right on the stage, right at the... Not stood you. on it, but, you know, uh, I'm right with there. my arms on it, and the photographs are absolutely terrible. Oh. Our host calls to mind a panto villain as he stands, sleek, hipped and elegant, in a white shirt and dark waistcoat. The villain theme continues with the band. The bass player, Galen Dorsey, arrives dressed as a highwayman, hat and all. He may have cast aside the makeup and moon boots of his 70s incarnations, but there's still something curiously otherworldly about Bowie. Maybe it's because at 55 he still doesn't look a day over 40. Three decades on, his voice, at once steely and soft, still has the capacity to make your stomach lurch with excitement. He's in a relaxed and chatty mood tonight when a joke falls flat, something about committing alcoholic suicide in Berlin. He shrugs his shoulders and lets out a big belly laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he did the same thing at the BBC Radio oh, right, Theatre. Okay. So, uh, in the first half of the show, Bowie performs low in its entirety. The experimental 1977 album, which, he reminds us, was initially rejected by his record company, More Fool Them. It's an exceptional album featuring classics such as Sound and Vision, Breaking Glass, Be My Wife, and Always Crashing in the Same Car. It's still 
still sounds as vital and fresh as it did 25 years ago. Uh, talk about being rejected. Didn't Bowie have the reject slip up on his wall in Switzerland for a while? He had it framed, didn't he? I think. He did. Uh, she goes on here, low is a treat, but you have to question Bowie's decision in the second half to play his latest album, Heathen, from start to finish. While it's his best album in years, it's not yet a classic, and a couple of tracks uh, would have been best left out, most notably Slip Away. Ooh, get this, a dire power ballad that wouldn't be out of place at a Celine Dion gig. Mm. And A Better Future, which contains some of the most toe-curling lyrics since Ronan Keating last put pen to paper. Ouch, so a double-edged sword, this. So The other songs stand up, however. I've been waiting for you, a cover of the Neil Young song, is riotous fun, whilst everyone says hi, a touchy note to his son Joe, brings a lump to the throat. I Will Be Your Slave is the closest Bowie gets to the experimentationalism of Low, yeah, with its metronomic drum pattern and electronic twitching. Happily, Bowie saves the best till last. For the encore, we are treated to a raucous version of White Light, White Heat, with the help from Dandy Warhols, then Fame and Ziggy Stardust. By the time he reaches is 1997's I'm Afraid of Americans he's gone way past curfew it's not as if anybody's going to pull the plug on him though this is David Bowie after all yeah, and uh, thinking about it, him doing White Light, White Heat, he did the uh, Save the Whale show there with Lou Reed, didn't he? And he, oh, did, he did White Light, White Heat within there as well, so that's probably a little nod to that. The other thing about that meltdown, Mark, is the fact that I know you sat there and watched the sound check, didn't you? Because I know that because you've told me, and also there's a photograph that I'm looking at now on your shelf. Uh, you just see the sort of the back of Bowie, and there's you sat in a seat looking very contemplative. Uh, I can't imagine what you were thinking, thinking... Here I am. Well, you're kind of, it looks like you're just on your own. There's nobody else I can see in that picture. Uh, well, f- as far as I can remember, in the auditorium at that point in time, it was Blam, uh, who took the photographs. Yeah. So that's Total Blam Blam, Mark Adams, who uh, runs DavidBowie.com. Um, and then you've got Bowie on stage, and uh, so Blam's behind him, taking a photograph of Bowie from the back. You can see the auditorium in front of Bowie, and there's one person sat there, which is me. Oh, and boy. I am thinking, how did this happen? And be- behind me is a sound man, who Bowie is actually talking to at that point in time uh, so it was it's one of the maddest photographs I'll ever have taken that's and incredible I, I need to thank Blam for it because it's just a really great memory of a truly mad moment yeah it's wonderful so do you know what he was playing for the sound check what he did um, well, actually, I mean, it, the whole band came on and did some of Low, as I remember. But at that point in time, I think he was just getting all of his gear right, you know, all of the monitoring right. in his ears and all that kind of stuff. So there was nothing particularly. He didn't do Laughing Gnome uh, like he did at the Manchester <laughs> Evening News sound check. He, he, he certainly didn't do that. Well, nevertheless, I'm very jealous, mate. Quite right, too. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode. Never let me down. Tony Newman. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.